This is a VOFM special broadcast. The COVID Report Show, Monday to Thursday, from 6 to 7 p.m. Exclusive to VOFM 88.1. Hear it. Greetings, salutations, and welcome to another edition of The COVID Report, your one-stop shop for all of the facts, the stats, the figures, and none of the misinformation as it pertains to all things COVID-19. I promise that hasn't changed. I'm joined, as ever, by Siposikhe Mbuli, and we are here to lead you on an international odyssey looking at how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected the lives of young people in various parts of the world. We're going to take it from the country where it arguably all began, that being China, before we take it to Ghana and then to the epicenter of the global pandemic, that being the United States of America. Join us on this international odyssey, one that we can't do without being updated on the numbers. And on that note, I'll throw it to my partner in crime, Siposi Khemboli. And with the numbers starting off at home, we have 17,200 confirmed COVID-19 cases of the last 24 hours. And the national death rate is sitting at 312 currently. And sadly, the Northern Cape has reported its first death. And the Western Cape remains the epicenter in South Africa with 61% of the country's positive tests. Then we take it off to China, which is currently sat at 82,000 confirmed cases. But over the last week, has reported five new cases. Then coming back home to Ghana, Ghana sits with 5,918 cases and over 1,500 recoveries and 31 deaths. In Ghana, we speak to two students, Duke and Hannah, who will share on their experience in the ground. And straight after Ghana, we head to the United States of America, which has become the new epicenter for the virus at 1.5 million confirmed cases with 297,000 recoveries and 92,000 deaths. And there we speak to Saba in Washington, D.C. Spirited edition of the show we have in store for you again. Thank you so much for joining us. And without any further ado, let's kickstart our international odyssey by taking it to the country where it arguably all began. And there we will meet Kinsani Ngomo, who is a 27-year-old English teacher based in the Shenzhen region of China in the Guangdong province, to be exact. She moved to China at the beginning of this year, having been born and raised in Mafikeng here in South Africa. She gives us an insight as to how things have unfolded in that part of the world. Kenzani, thank you so much for joining us on the COVID Report and welcome to the show. Thank you, Ken. Thank you so much for having me. We're absolutely delighted to be able to gain this insight from someone located as far across the world as you are currently right now. I guess what I'd like to first ask you is the ways in which this pandemic has unfolded on that side of the world. How have you found the ways in which this has all sprung about? Has it had a damaging toll on the plans that you had with your move to China? So when I got to China, everything was actually really normal. Um, uh, I, I, I was informed by, you know, the recruiting team that um, took me on um, that uh, things were pretty normal. They kept delaying my trip because they didn't want, um, they kind of didn't want to send us into like the fire, right? Um, so I moved um, when they gave me the go ahead 
that it was safe enough to come. And, and they were completely right. Like everything returned uh, back to normal. Um, and yeah, we can still experience kind of the culture um, in a sense. Um, the only thing is that we can't travel to different cities right now, um, just because uh, China's kind of closed its borders off. I mean, sorry, countries, um, because China's closed its uh, borders off, um, et cetera. Um, in terms of my plans for 2020, so when I moved here, I was um, originally scheduled to be an, on, an offline teacher, sorry, so teaching students um, from three to 18 years of age, face-to-face -face in like a classroom setting. Um, but now we're forced to do all of our lessons online. So it's been a lot of just like working from home, um, planning from home, having meetings at home. So everything's just been taking place at home. Um, less, lessons are obviously shorter now, and we have no idea when um, the training centers will, you know, soon reopen. They have um, been opening schools like um, recently, but like in bits and pieces. They've started with high schools and then primary schools, and then they're finally going to move on to kindergarten, kindergartens next month, I'm told. But um, us working in training centers have no idea what the plan will be uh, going forward. So, yeah, it's been a bit of a, a rough time, um, you know, moving to a country where you not really expect, uh, where you don't uh, know what to expect, but the virus has made it a little bit more challenging. Definitely. We can only imagine as if for the change in calligraphy, the change in language, the change in pretty much everything you knew. So you've been in China mm. for two months now. Um, you left South Africa just before the outbreak, going into a country that yeah. was already dealing with the pandemic. What were your thoughts yeah. at the time of leaving? And what was your state around that? Were you considering maybe you shouldn't go? Uh, were you considering, mm. were, you, were you petrified of what's on the other side? Um, yeah, so like I said in the previous question, um, I had signed a contract with my school in like November 2019 and I was very excited um, for this big change that was happening in my life um, and the virus hit China quite um, like you know, it, it literally like just shattered everything it devastated the entire country and my recruitment team kind of advised against traveling because they were not sure whether it was going to be safe enough um, so I, my trip was postponed I think three times I was supposed to leave in February and they kept postponing it and then it you know February became like late like early March and then early March became late March so at, at the time I was feeling kind of despondent um, feeling quite like depressed like where's my life going should I maybe look for another job in South Africa it was just all you know sorts of feelings um, I remember when I was actually supposed to leave the second, like the second time they announced that my trip would be moved, they told me that like my flight was canceled and I was literally on the way to the airport. <laughs> so I had to turn around and go home and just like wait to be told, you know, what to do. Um, uh, so when, uh, before I came, they also informed us that we would be quarantined uh, for two weeks. Um, so they didn't know whether we were going to be quarantined in a uh, hotel, like a special quarantine hotel, or if we would be allowed to quarantine at the hotel that they had booked for us. Um, but it turns out when we landed, we were quarantined. We were basically taken away to a quarantine facility and stayed there for um, quite some time. So yeah, that I like as soon as that happened, I had like second thoughts about like 
why am I here? Like, should I go home? Like, this is wild. Um, so it literally went from feelings of like anxiety to feelings of like relief, like, yeah, I'm finally like gone. And then when I got here, it was like cognitive dissonance all over again. So yeah, it's, it's, yeah, the states were quite mixed for me. I can imagine how jarring that must have uh, been to experience. I can imagine the range of emotions that you've so eloquently described just now and the mm. sort of mental gymnastics that comes with, again, another indication of this domino effect of the pandemic that we keep yes. highlighting here on the COVID report. Now, my next question in its current form, Kenzani, is... Um, is only has one layer to it, and I'd like to add an additional layer. So, um, with, with, so we fast forwarded to the period where you've just landed um, in in China. You're getting yourself settled in. You've taken the time to observe how the pandemic has been covered on that side of the world. And I ask this next question with a with an interest in sort of clarifying or or re- or rebuffing um, bits of information that have emerged from that side of the country that have been trickled down to us here in South Africa on that side of the world as, as it pertains to the Chinese people and the ways in which they have dealt with the coronavirus pandemic. In, your, in the time that you have been there, how would you say that the government has dealt with uh, the coronavirus uh, pandemic? And are there the, 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 these troubling reports of, of discrimination from Chinese people against uh, against black people, um, according to the, the, the various reports that have surfaced. Is there, is there any weight to them or have they, has the coverage of that been one-sided or are there, are there other nuances that perhaps haven't been fully expounded on here on this side of the world that you are seeing firsthand being in China? Mm, good question. Um, so to answer the first part of your question, I think that the government is handling things very, very, very well, actually. Like, I was very surprised, as jarring as my experience was when I first landed, it was very understandable why they had to put um, all sorts of measures in place. So when you land at the airport, like, literally, there's just all of these people in hazmat suits. Um, you have to fill in a health report, so where you declare your, your symptoms. So you can, you know, if you've had, like, any symptoms of the virus. Um, so I had had a cough <laughs> when I was in South Africa. And um, obviously, I didn't want to lie on this form and say, like, I don't have any, you know, anything because I wanted uh, anything that, uh, you know, if, if anything was wrong, I wanted to, to, be, to be treated accordingly. So I declared this cough and... I was literally whisked straight away to hospital, like on my very first day. Um, I was taken to hospital. Um, I was tested like fully, like the full test, so the na- like the nasal uh, nucleic acid test. Um, I was taken for blood. I had a, a CT scan, sorry, of my lungs. Um, and then they gave me the mouth swab. So I stayed there for about 24 hours, like under observation. Very, very, guys, it was just, yeah, it was, I felt very isolated, I must say. Um, they took my temperature like 500 times that day. Um, but yeah, the, 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 the way in which everything is being handled, the sense of urgency that they've handled everything with is actually quite commendable. Um, the airports are, everything is just seamless, it's swift. It might take a bit of time, 
you know, to know where exactly you're supposed to be because of language barriers, etc., and the admin that comes with that. Um, but everything has been handled absolutely seamlessly. Um, and they're taking every single precaution uh, that you can ever imagine. Um, in terms of your second, uh, the second part of your question, um, luckily for me, I have not experienced um, much discrimination where I, where, where I currently stay. Um, our city is quite, I guess, friendly and tolerant of our presence here. Um, I have also seen, you know, like horror stories of people being forcefully evicted, etc. But I can't speak um, to that because it's not been my, my personal experience. And I'm, I'm very grateful for that. Have you been in touch with your family and friends here in South Africa? Um, when they tell you about what is happening here, how does it compare and how does what you've experienced in China to in your mind and to their experience compare? Yeah, so I speak to my family, mostly my mother, like on a daily basis. If we're not texting, we're calling. Um, and she's, very, she's been very helpful in keeping me updated with the situation back home. I must say the first couple of weeks when I got here, I felt quite um, guilty because I felt like I was like abandoning her and abandoning my entire family to go and start this new life while there was a crisis brewing back home. But I think there is hope. I was talking to a friend today um, and I said there's hope because literally China was under lockdown for about three months or most of the cities were in, on lockdown for, for quite a, a long period of time. And it's, it's very, um, in, not inspiring, I don't want to say the word inspiring, but it's very, it brings me a lot of hope to see how everybody and everything has kind of bounced back from that lockdown. I speak to my colleagues that have been here for some time and they'll tell you like it was so different like um, to what's happening currently, like all the shops were closed and nobody could go anywhere, all the malls were closed. Um, you could only go out for essential goods, um, you know, like like this, like what's happening uh, back at home. Um, but now everything is normal. Shopping malls are open. People can eat um, at restaurants. You can order takeout. Um, the only thing that we have to do, obviously, is have our temperatures checked. So there's usually if you step, if you walk into a shop or a restaurant, there's a, a guard or whatever a waiter who takes your temperature. Um, and then you have your mask on, um, which is a requirement here. So, so I, it just brings me a lot of hope that things will get better. Um, like after three months of lockdown, things have almost returned like to normal. My question, and maybe it might be a bit controversial, but should the pandemic continue, especially because there has been new cases emerging in China, um, would you consider returning home? Um... <laughs> Tough one. It's a tough one. Um, I think it, it as much as I'm very scared and anxious of what's happening, I think I have had this, this desire to experience life in China for a really long time. And I think it would be quite unfair of me to kind of just give up on that vision um, quite prematurely. I know when... Um, a couple of weeks ago, my mom asked me, like, so don't you want to come home? Like, do you want to come home? And I'm like, mom, I've only been here for, like, three weeks. Like, just chill, you know. Let's, let's give it some time. And I am aware of the new emerging cases and that there might be a possibility of a second wave. Like, that's what I hear in the news. Um, and I'm not sure. 
But at this point, I, I don't, I think maybe I should just ride it out for a little bit longer. And unless things obviously get like absolutely unbearable and, you know, I'm not able to continue with, you know, what I'm here to do. Um, but yeah, let's, let's wait and see. I'm keeping as positive as I can and that the situation will, will improve. And just on that, uh, you touched on how this pandemic has affected what you do. You mentioned being an English teacher. Yeah, so, um, so I, I obviously was supposed to start as an offline teacher, but I started like immediately um, as an online teacher, and I can't really say what the experience is online versus offline, but I have heard from, you know, teachers that have been here longer than I am that it's completely different. Um, there's a lot of like prep that takes place. Um, so that's what we're, you know, we, we, we're busy with. Um, there's a challenge to keep the kids motivated and engaged throughout the session. Um, cause you know, learning online and not having that classroom interaction can get a bit like tedious. I can see some of my children sometimes like literally looking very uninterested and you can see that, you know, they're kind of sick of this and they want to return back to normal. Um, but yeah, it's been very challenging. It's a, it's a, it's a, a good challenge to kind of find ways, find new ways, find um, yeah, find new ways of engaging um, the students, keeping them motivated to learn. Um, yeah, so so it would obviously be better offline because I mean, you for that for that classroom engagement that I was speaking about, um, you know, for kids that are like quite active, you know, it's nice to jump around, etc. But now they can't really do that because it's just them and the screen. But it's working. I think it's working quite well. The kids are very committed. They come, you know, to, to the lessons on time. They're focused. They're mostly well-behaved. Um, and, yeah, I, I think that maybe this might be the, the future of education going forward, really. Um, especially, you know, if you have, you get, you get anxious parents that want to make sure their kids are safe and protected. And maybe they, you know, they'll carry on with this uh, this online platform just, you know, for their kids' safety. Um, but yeah, it's been, it's been a challenge. I'm not going to lie. It's been a really big challenge, kind of keep everybody motivated and engaged. Thank you so much, Kensani, for your insight on what has happened in mainland China and your experience. And now touching down in Ghana, we speak to two university students at the Nkwame Nkura University of Science and Technology, Duke Sasu, the founder of the African Human Rights Forum and an LLB candidate, and Hannah Nyaku, a candidate in a master's in biodata analytics and computational geometrics. And thank you so much. So my first question to you is, both of you in your different parts of Ghana, what did your daily lives prior to corona look like? For me as a student, for example, it was a buzzing environment. Um, we were getting towards our mid-semester examination. So in terms of campus atmosphere, it was one of academics and one of um, interactions. In terms of the Kumasi as a town or a city, uh, we had it's a really active city. So it was, the buzz was really high prior to the, contact, the whole corona uh, situation. Uh, so uh, it, it was really an active situation compared to what Corona brought to us in that direction. Okay, so um, here uh, I, I happened to be in Kumasi as well before, um, during the lockdown and then just uh, came back to Accra. And um, I, I lived in a very, um, should I say, a small town within the Kumasi locality and then um, things actually moved on as usual, as you'd usually see. 
like in, in any normal day. But um, it happened that for most of students around that area and um, try to seclude ourselves, keeping to our rooms and yes. So uh, that was how it happened then. Now, if you could kindly, both of you, uh, take us through um, how the restrictions put in place have affected your lives. How have uh, your studies been affected, Duke? In terms of our education, for example, um, what has mainly happened is that there's been a radical shift from traditional learning approaches to online learning approaches. And luckily for us, we have our university, for example, already was trying to integrate these online learning platforms into our daily educational systems already. But then what we've had is a truncation of, of, our, of our academic work, mainly, and trying to find new ways to assess students whilst we are home. Um, so, for example, a communique has recently come out saying that some of our uh, end-of-semester examination would mainly uh, be based on, on assignment basis. Uh, so by the end of June, um, all faculties must submit the compiled results of students. So and also, so we've also had several lectures online via Zoom, for example, and our university's online platform has also been very active in helping lecturers interact with students. Um, but we have lost that personal touch of a conversation with our lecturers and that personal interaction that you have with your colleagues in terms of academics. And to some people, it is essentially a new form of learning approach for them, and it's quite challenging to that extent. Uh, but largely, there's been a radical shift in how we study, but we are trying to adapt. Um, the challenge essentially has been for people or who are, whom we can categorize as less endowed, who might not have access to internet services within their communities or within their homes, as to how they can also be a part of this radical shift in our educational model and that, has, that is what the conversation in our country has been as to how to provide access for these individuals as well. How have uh, your own endeavors, Hannah, been affected by the restrictions that have been put in place by your government? Okay, so um, pointing back to what Duke has already said, yes, um, internet has been um, a very challenging aspect for um, online studies that school tried to push forward. Um, for me, for instance, uh, most of my work happened to be um, internet-based and then it's required uh, requiring lots of data. So it's happened to be quite expensive for some of us. Um, but uh, I think some of the networks or some of the telecommunication networks um, try to put forward and great initiatives where uh, some of our platforms for studying happen to be free, which I think was a great thing they did. Do you mind sharing broadly of what have the restrictions that your government put in place been and how they've affected larger parts of your communities? The, the first case of, of, of coronavirus, for example, was um, uh, confirmed in Ghana on the 12th of March, primarily. And uh, we went into a total lockdown. Uh, with our borders closed and uh, very limited, very uh, lim limited access to, to the main township and all that. So what happened was that within that two, those two weeks, we all had to stay indoors primarily, and but but people were allowed to access essential services, just as is being applied in most parts of the world. Um, the challenge then was for people in, in communities or people whom we might call 
homeless within the society, for example, who essentially uh, have to go through the, the bear of what such a lockdown and its impact on their daily lives. And within Ghana's demographics, for example, there are people who more or less have to work each day in order to feed their families. So that became a struggle as well. There are also some communities in Ghana where we share certain public utilities, vis-a-vis water, access to toilets, service facilities, and, and, and others. So it became a challenge as to how those environments could cope and how these restrictions will, will impact on them. So it has not been easy. It has been um, a way of an entire new modeling approach for all students, for, for all people to try and adjust. So just after two, three weeks of, of this lockdown, um, the president had to lift the entire lockdown process um, saying that we are still closing down our borders. Um, however, that total lockdown is, is, um, is being lifted. But then there is still um, a closure of, for, for public gatherings. Schools are still closed. Okay, so um, the town where I lived in back in Kumasi happened to be um, one or give one typical example of um, exactly what people went through during um, this coronavirus course. And then you happen to find that in this community, most things are shared. Um, people fetch water from outside their houses, from different homes. People share public facilities, public toilets, and all. And then um, it so happens that uh, trying to keep these people locked down in their room was a very, uh, uh, was quite a challenge actually. But um, the government or the president had already made it known that for these particular ones, it was, um, uh, you could easily or you could just go out and then get these essentials whenever needed. But the problem actually happened to be that while the government had tried to put these, while the, while the government had tried to put us um, or confine us to our rooms or uh, put us in isolation, uh, things just couldn't work as they had to be. People had to just go out and then try to get these essentials and then had to mingle around ourselves. So and it might have, lockdown might have worked quite well in some communities, but in others it was very difficult to keep it running because of the community structure. Thank you very much for that, Hannah. You briefly touched on it just now, and um, I'd like to uh, expand on it a little bit, if you will. You just touched on how, in many ways, you feel as if uh, the lockdown has gone well, but uh, you noted a few discrepancies in other areas. Could you take us through, and Duke, you're also welcome to weigh in on this as well, um, how you feel about uh, the ways in which uh, your government has approached dealing with the pandemic Okay, so um, in part, I am pretty excited about um, the, how the government actually um, tried to put these things in place immediately. Because um, as um, at 137 cases, about 137 cases, we went on a lockdown. And then by our set case, or before then, by our set case, um, also shared gatherings had been banned. Um, but uh, it just so happens that um, 
for the government try to put certain um, uh, the government try to put certain measures in place to try to fend for needy people or needy household and then I actually kind of found um, some form of loophole in there. Realized that um, during such things as sharing these resources or these foods and all stuff, people um, those regulations or the rules for social distancing actually had not been met. People would come together struggling for um, their share of whatever is being shared and then that I believe could um, actually have made things even worse as in spreading the virus thing and then it also happened to find that quite a number of uh, people still happen to live or st lived on the streets. Firstly, uh, I think that since the entire contest of Wuhan um, became an issue, the fact that in Italy, for example, there were massive casualties in Italy. What um, I expected was uh, a preemptive action from the government that the lockdown should have come much earlier before necessarily re re recording a case, that um, we could have had our borders closed before having us probably recording a first casualty or first case in Ghana. Um, so that, that was my major problem. But in terms of, or, or that is my major problem with the government, but in terms of uh, the government's conduct and how the government has handled the crisis um, since recording or announcing the first recorded case on March 12th, I think that it has been quite impressive. The challenge has been with regards to security institutions, um, roughly as Hannah said, as to how they've managed um, their interaction with people. So for example, you have the police or military, for example, trying to, during the total lockdown, uh, so they might identify an individual going around, moving around, trying to access essential services, and they might query this individual as to why the individual is not wearing protective, like nose masks or face masks, and then probably having whatever the person must, might have, should have. But then this very agent of the government will themselves not be having or wearing these very protective masks. So you wonder what moral high ground they have to be asking people to conform to the very rules that they themselves are breaking. And that has been, been questions that are yet to be answered. Um, we've also had issues of minor human rights abuse concerns during the lockdown, but the government stemmed on it drastically and addressed that concern. And we barely hear such abuse from the security forces in any way. So in terms of human rights, it's one way that the government has been quite restrictive on, quite um, in, in ensuring that the ordinary Ghanaian has a right being safeguarded the atmosphere. Uh, in terms of the economy, for example, what we had, the main challenge was that um, when the government decided to lift the lockdown also, there were concerns as to should the life of individuals be um, not be a primary concern as against the impact of the COVID-19 on the economy. Because there were questions as to whether this was mainly a question of impact on the economy and why individuals were trying to, the government was trying to lift the, the, the whole lockdown. So, but then, so there was a lot of backlash. But you do realize that consciously, even though the lockdown has been lifted, um, we have had uh, people who are adhering to social distancing rules. We have had individuals who are very cautious of these safety precautions. So from Hannah and both Duke, the government has been impressive, but there is 
room for improvement on the work that your government has done. They have requested a rapid credit facility disbursement from the International Monetary Fund. And Duke, I'd like to hear what is your take on this? And do you believe that this is necessary to fight coronavirus holistically? Or do you think there's other avenues that your government could have gone through before requesting this amount of money from the International Monetary Fund? In terms of access to this credit facility, uh, we are in a crisis mode in this country. Uh, we are in a mode where uh, we need to do everything to survive. The Bank of Ghana announced that we might not be meeting our economic targets, even with the kind of economic reports and reactions economically that we are getting within the first quarter of the COVID-19. We could face a recession. Um, the credit facility, I think, is needed in trying to uh, restore the kind of decline we are having in our, in our economy. The question is whether this facility would be used in its greatest utility as possible. I think that what we have had with, with governments, not just, which is not just unique in Ghana, is that is whether or not funding meant for very defined purposes are ones that are being used for such purposes. Um, and that has been the concern of, of every Ghanaian as to the level of accountability that we will have for, for these, these credit health facilities. But overall, I think that the impact of the COVID-19 has clearly been one, of, one which is massive on the economy. And any form of facility that tends to support the government in addressing the narrative, but as far as accountability and transparency in terms of disbursement of funding is concerned, then I'm, I'm all for it. Valuable insights on the Ghanaian condition that we could only ever get from two individuals directly situated in the country of Ghana, Duke Aransasu and Hannah Niarko, talking to us about their experiences dealing with the impact of the coronavirus pandemic and the restrictions of a lockdown. From there, we take it all the way to the country that currently statistically stands apart from the rest of the world as the epicenter of the global pandemic. This is, of course, the United States of America. There, we are joined by Saba Amara, who is an Ethiopian-American fourth-year student at Gordon College in Massachusetts, studying sociology and political science. Saba, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the COVID Report, and welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. Can you take us through uh, what a day in your life looked like prior to the corona pandemic unfolding and how it's shaped and shifted um, in form since? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think uh, COVID-19 has uh, taken the entire world uh, by storm. Um, For me personally, you know, this is my fourth year of college. And interestingly enough, this was a, I, I don't know what you guys would call it there, but it's almost, you know, a semester of internship um, an equivalent to an abroad semester. Um, and I was in San Francisco. So my school is in Massachusetts, but um, I had, you know, uh, flown out to uh, San Francisco to pursue an internship and um, really, you know, engage housing um, in, you know, in the West Coast. So um, it was really interesting because I think the first day that, um, COVID-19, as we call it, uh, arrived to the U.S. That was like mid-January, I believe. Um, And our first case was in Washington. So that was, you know, in the West Coast as well. Um, And before I flew out, I believe on the 4th of February, 
um, there were already cases popping up in Boston. So uh, there, there seemed to, to be like a lot of speculation, so much uh, that was up in the air. I, I even felt at times uh, worried while I was in Boston, hey, like, you know, um, San Francisco and the West Coast is becoming more and more, you know, a ground zero of sorts for this, uh, you know, pandemic. So would, would my, what would my semester look like? Um, would I be able to, you know, um, it, will my semester look um, the way that I had planned? So there's a lot of fears around that uh, prior to me um, going to uh, San Francisco. So, and once I arrived, I think, you know, everything was normal in the sense that, you know, I'd go to my internship, I would, um, I was like applying to jobs, I was, you know, um, making new friends, all of that good stuff that you do when you're just um, acquainting yourself with a new city. Um, but, you know, because Washington isn't too far off from California, I think the conversation there was becoming more rapid, you know, fears around uh, the group homes and the um, just the senior homes that were, you know, um, that were being hit by the virus. Um, so it, I think it trickled down and that fear and that concern tend to um, move slowly and percolate um, in, in, in our vicinity. So, um, so life was, it's, it's interesting because it's, it's hard to say what was life entirely before COVID because I think over time, COVID started to mean different things um, and it be started becoming more serious or uh, less serious um, for different people. Um, and, and so it's interesting. It's been almost a roller coaster ride of things intensifying and things getting um, better and new information coming out. And, um, you know, uh, from, you know, conversations about Black people not getting it or Africans getting it. And I think there's just been misinformation in a lot of ways, um, but also just um, a lot of developments. Uh, that happened that have come by day and ultimately um, I know that I'm, I'm saying a lot but just to give you some background um, March early March w was my um, my spring break and so I went to LA with some friends and that's actually where um, my family and I decided it would be best for me to come straight back to DC so I didn't even return to San Francisco to prepare my luggage and so on and so forth. Um, whereas some of my friends and uh, peers did um, and eventually were encouraged and actually told um, to go back home. So, so much changed. I think there was a lot of room for people to make decisions that, you know, that were specific to them, but, um, but also over time, a lot of encouragement uh, from schools and what have you to, uh, to take a certain path. So Saba, you've spoken a fair bit on the schools and actually just your individual um, trying to figure out to navigate this whole process and the whole impact of COVID. So 
question then is, what did your government do to navigate COVID? What restrictions have been put in place by your government and how have those affected your life? So what happens with your internship? What happens with school? Um, are you allowed to go to the shopping mall? Um, here in South Africa, we're currently under level four lockdown, which limits what we can and cannot do. So what happened in your country and what is happening currently? It's interesting, Sipo, because, you know, as always, um, and even back when, you know, we initially met and, you know, my peers and I were learning about South Africa and making connections back to um, the U.S. When was this that we met, Sipo? We met in when I was in grade 11. So So six years ago. Yeah, no, I was in grade 11 as well. So, yeah, six years ago. you know, the conversations we we were having is there's so much that the U.S. can learn from South Africa, uh, the young democracy, um, you know, everything from apartheid to even now, like like we're, we're talking about, you know, the uh, strict measures that South Africa is taking, I think, is something that uh, the U.S. Uh, should take note of, uh, to say the least. Um, but of course, you know, um, our countries are largely different in many ways. And, um, you know, I think in many ways are, you know, the states have taken their own precautionary measures and there's been room for governors and, and mayors and, um, you know, various uh, leaders within our communities on, on the state level to make direct and more specific decisions uh, for each you know, region. Um, As far as, you know, our federal government, it's, it's been, I guess there have been developments by the day. Um, Since, since I came, essentially, to kind of go back to um, my time in San Francisco, I, I made the decision um, to, to come to DC, essentially, knowing that, that option was like available to me. So by that time, this is what the first week of March, schools had reached out saying, hey, this is what you should know about the, um, the virus. Um, you know, it was in their best interest and in the interest of ourselves um, for us to know, you know, the basic information, like, you know, this is now a pandemic. Um, and from there, you know, I think a week following that, which is now mid-March, schools were, you know, making decisions to go online. Um, and, you know, families and were driving to colleges to pick up their kids. And, um, you know, sports gatherings were being canceled and uh, the Olympics. I mean, this all happened you know, gradually, uh, but I think March was really that time when these sorts of measures were being taken. Um, to speak on DC specifically, our mayor has been wonderful um, in terms of taking a very serious, um, serious measure. Uh, we're not on, um, what did you say, ground four or what was that? Level four. Level four, okay. So we're still, I would like to say, I don't know what level four means necessarily, but uh, for us at least, we've been, uh, you know, 
where unless you're an essential worker, you're supposed to be home um, and encouraged to stay home, encouraged to wear masks um, and just really, you know, um, following the CDC and um, the WHO recommendations, you know, six feet apart, all of that good stuff. Um, within, I think by the end of March, was it, you know, in order to go into these, um, into essential businesses, because all the other businesses were being closed. Um, again, various governors and leaders, I mean, we see that in New York, there is such a huge uh, spike in um, cases. So each state was, you know, doing what was best for them. And um, yeah, so DC went ahead and um, ensured that, you know, if you're going to go to the supermarket, you have to have, you know, face masks. And that changed within a day, you know, people were going to the supermarket with, you know, nothing but um, what they would normally come with. And it's funny, you'd see, um, even I once I had to put, like, literally go back and get my mask or some people were putting their jackets around their face just to kind of make it work because you know you're adjusting to the new system and and so it, it puts into question I mean if you don't have a mask um, then you, you can't enter the building so our city you know and Sipo as you know I've been engaging this a lot um, how do we ensure that people are getting masks and the people falling um, in the cracks and in, in the margins are that they have access to the resources needed in order to um, not only stay afloat, but um, somewhat thrive and uh, keep their decency during this time? A lot's been made uh public knowledge um, on this side of the fence, at least, as far as uh, the ways in which Americans have been documented to be responding to these restrictions, to be critical or overly critical in some instances, to flat out uh, directly disobey uh, restrictions as a part of them protesting certain lockdowns in uh, pockets of the United States. And I do think that being that you are based in the United States, you are the best person um, to ask. I must say, um, the news, you know, isn't too, too far-fetched, I would say, from some of what we're seeing here. Um, I guess we're a bit rebellious in that way. And it's, I'm ashamed to say, you know, that there, again, I've spoken about the diversity and again, I, I can't speak for the entire country, of course, but just even from my own observations and um, some of the conversations I've been having uh, in regards to people having, um, you know, just mistrust um, with the information that's being provided, um, just a lot of different theories and, uh, you know, explanations as to what this pandemic or what some have said is even a pandemic and it being a ploy um, of various sorts and um, and you know I I think for me it really boils down to this reality I think when we look at sociology and we we begin to even um, analyze information and the privilege that it is um, and I think our our cities and our states and our country as a whole has been working to rebuild trust between the people and 
the government in various ways and um, especially in the time of Twitter and in the time of uh, Instagram and um, just so many you know contradicting and mixed views being presented I think it's easy for folks who may not be engaging um, you know uh, viable and factual um, evidence for them to believe something you know that's kind of absurd or uh, for them to even just kind of uh, assume that they they'd be immune to the circumstances um, I th so I, I think that the, the the lack of information um, and trust is definitely there, and you see that in um, in in the way people are going about their days, right? Whether it's completely disregarding the information uh, to to engaging it and still having their concerns. Um, so I think to speak on those speculations, I would I would agree. There's you know, there's some disobedience in that regard. There are a lot of folks um, who, you know, I, I think a bit more on the conservative side who are saying, you know, let's go back to work. Um, you know, a lot of folks that are just concerned about the economy and a whole bunch of other things. I think in general, people are frustrated with the circumstances and I think our plans and our um, our affairs look much different than we anticipated. So I, I totally see the disappointment there. Yeah, so it's it's interesting. I don't want to be like belabor this point and um, but a couple hours ago I was actually speaking with some of my community members. So I live in an apartment um, and it's an intergenerational apartment. So meaning there are people, you know, who are of different ages and it's just an intentional community in that way and we've been in this apartment for a couple years now so we have a lot of conversations um that maybe we wouldn't have outside of the apartment if that makes sense uh and some of the things that were being shared with me are you know just concerns about the validity of this pandemic, um, how it came about, and just a lot of mistrust about the information that's that we're seeing. Um, and I think at the core of that, um, I think there's a legitimate for fear for me that it, you know these this type of mistrust and in, in the information that is out there um, is is bound to. I mean, it, it's bound to cost us, right? Um, I think ignorance can have a way of, I mean, when it gets you, it gets you. And I think this pandemic is quite serious and something that um, everyday people uh, in the US and of course around the globe are learning uh, is something that we need to take uh, much more seriously than we are. So in that regard, I, I would agree with some of those speculations. Um, you know, I, I think there are, there's a lot more to that in terms of access and what types of information people uh, are able to, um, able to engage in. And, and beyond that, I, I think more conversations need to be had about, uh, regardless of our own ideologies and our own thoughts about the origins of uh, this crisis, 
it is our social responsibility, I believe, and um, our civic leaders believe and are encouraging us to engage in anyhow, right? Wear your masks and follow these procedures because it's not just for you. Uh, it's not b- just for your own benefit, but uh, for that of your neighbor as well. So uh, it, it's definitely, I think, imperative in that way. So your first citizen, um, how do you feel, Donald Trump, how do you feel he contributes to the misinformation? And how do you feel he as a government leader has handled the situation? Um, and I know he has threatened funding, taking away funding from WHO. He recently wrote a letter to the WHO. He has been tweeting about possible cures, including drinking bleach. So do you think he contributes to the misinformation and is his approach one that should be favored? You know, I think we can all agree um, that this president, you know, doesn't have the best track record when it comes to honesty, when it comes to integrity. Um, It is something that I believe has really frustrated. Um, I can speak uh, for folks like myself. And in general, um, I think we've become, you know, numb to all the misinformation. I think when it becomes a daily part of, you know, an administration, when it changes the way that we we have seen leadership, um, that we have seen the presidency, I definitely think it cultivates a sense of mistrust between the people, uh, especially during these times when we're not just seeing contradictions in regards to a, a Twitter post, you know, and something completely irrelevant to the American people, but these are lives we're dealing with. There's just so much at risk, and I can't stress that enough. And so I think as a leader, as the commander-in-chief, as someone who has a say in this, and also during these times is supposed to definitely exist as you know, a, a sense of guidance and comfort to our community. I think Trump has done a very poor job, to say quite frankly, it's no surprise to me. And that on the COVID report was Saba Amare, who is all the way in Washington, D.C., speaking of her experience as a United States citizen. Thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much for having me and um, for all the wonderful work that you're doing and bringing these, um, these conversations and holding this platform. Thank you. And so ends our little globe trot around the world, looking at the various ways in which the COVID-19 pandemic has impacted parts of the world through the eyes of young people. Valuable insight, wouldn't you say, Super 100%. All the perks of travel without any of the jet lag. Uh, indeed. Thank you for joining us on the COVID report. If you want to get in on the podcast action, follow our website, www.vowfm.com. You'll be taken straight to our podcast page and all of our conversations will be there for your listening pleasure. You can also follow the conversation on social media. On Twitter, we are at VOWFM, hashtag the COVID report. Thank you so much for joining us one more time. From Siposiche and myself, it is goodbye for now. Until next time, bye-bye.